So tonight, uh, we're kind of moving ahead. This is, was the initial slide that I used to uh, talk a little bit about the movement to our day and age from the concentration on God uh, to the modern era, uh, concentration on humanity. And then we're kind of sitting right about here in the late um, uh, early 1960s, early 1970s. And we're going to kind of move toward year 2000 within the next week or two and kind of finish up this study talking about some of the uh, problems that uh, have occurred, uh, you know, in more recent days for us. So um, having said that, what I want to do tonight is I want us to concentrate on the something that most of us probably can still remember in our lifetime, and that is uh, the turbulence of the 1960s and the emergence of uh, white Christian America and some of the tensions that that put upon our country. So when we come to tonight's uh, topic, what I want to talk about tonight is we've already talked a little bit about uh, some of the uh, icons of masculinity that we looked at last week, Roosevelt, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, John Wayne. But then there was this connection to uh, politics and a strong military defense that became prominent in the 1960s. Now, this is a lot of names, but they all play a critical role in shaping the type of uh, a nation that we're living in in our own day and age. So we want to begin with John F. Kennedy, and we'll see how far we can get uh, tonight. But I think a lot of things probably will help you uh, in terms of a light bulb going on in understanding some of the tensions that we're feeling even in the news today. So having said that, when we think a little bit about uh, the development of our country, uh, there were some uh, some very significant things that happened in the 1960s. And in the 1960s, there was a battle that was going on and the emergence really of the evangelical political movement was put on full display. And I think that began uh, with John F. Kennedy. So here's a picture of John F. Kennedy born May 29th, 1917 and he was assassinated on November 22nd, 1963. Into his third year uh, presidency, um, we find that he was assassinated by an ex-Marine, but before that happened, and there's still discussions going on as to why he was assassinated, whether it was a conspiracy of some sort or the actions of one individual or a couple of individuals, the whole discussion of the grassy knoll down in Dallas and all that type of stuff is still something that people discuss to this day. What I wanna talk about tonight is the fear that occurred when John F. Kennedy became president. The fear that occurred was because he was a Catholic. And up to this point, much of the roots of our country could be traced back to Europe and to the Protestant Reformation. And while there was kind of like two 
distinct branches of Protestantism, the more liberal one and the more conservative one. Um, for most of the 20th century, um, white Christian America was Christian and Protestant. And in its heyday in the 1950s, um, people like Catholics and Jews and other other ethnicities, I couldn't get that out, ethnicities uh, were minorities. And with the election of JFK, things began to change. And there was a fear of America becoming more diverse, beginning with religion. Um, and so what we find is there is a struggle to uh, maintain power within white Christian America, Protestantism. And then there's this internal dispute, even among Christians, in terms of who's going to carry on kind of the image of the United States. Is it going to be Protestant? Is it going to be Catholics? Now, I don't know if you remember, if you can think back to the 60s and into the 70s, um, there was uh, an attitude by Protestant Christians that Catholics were all wrong. They were uh, individuals that believed in all the wrong things. And so there was some suspicion even as to whether they would be titled Christian or not. And so a lot of that tension came out during that day and age. And Protestants tried to keep their distance from Catholics. One of the individuals that we talked about last week, Billy Graham, really made a commotion when he allowed a Catholic to be on the platform with him. And that was a great discussion. But here's what's going on. Um, Many of the Catholics found in their early immigration to this country, in particular the Irish, uh, that the door was kind of barred for them. And um, no matter what John F. Kennedy said about his allegiance to the Constitution of the United States, it was, it was always looked upon with kind of a wary eye. And that is, what is he more loyal to, his Catholicism? or the constitution. And so what happened is that um, there is this, this tension that's going on. And what we begin to see is that there is a movement now toward um, uh, a more conservative type of approach to politics. And one of the reasons for that, we'll, we'll see here on this slide, is there was the accusation that John F. Kennedy was soft on communism. And uh, so one time at a freedom forum at Pepperdine College in 1961, uh, you can see there 1,500 businessmen and educators discussed outlaw outlawing the Communist Party in the United States, refusing to seat Red China in the UN, and disbanding President Kenny, Kennedy's Peace Corps. And the, uh, and the uh, organization that was very strong behind that was called the John Birch Society, very ultra conservative type of organization. Out of that arose an individual by the name of Barry Goldwater. And the evangelical church began to look to Goldwater 
as kind of their savior to maintain that Protestant white Christian uh, majority. Well, he was out of that cowboy mold that we talked about last week. And what he called for was a strong defense. He encouraged uh, citizenry in the country and so forth. And he decides that he is going to run for president in 1964. He'll lose to Lyndon Johnson, but his popularity began to mask a new political realignment that was underway. So let me show you what he looks like. Um, Here's Barry Goldwater, uh, born in 1909, passed away in 1998. He's an individual that we might say is the hard, hard right Republican uh, ultra conservative, but this goes all the way back to the early 60s. So, what we find is that there is this tension that's going on because of the Catholics, the fear of John F. Kennedy by some. And if I can fast forward just for a second, we're, we'll get to this in a moment. What we'll find is by the late 1970s, early 1980s, It was clear that Catholics and evangelicals would need to partner together if they were going to preserve this white Christian America. And they had two things in common. One was right uh, to life, right to life, okay? And the other was the homosexual agenda. So the pro-life movement and the anti-gay movement kind of secured both the Catholics and these white Protestants together. We'll come to Richard Nixon in a moment, but what I want to do is fast forward here just for a second and allow you to listen in part to a podcast that's called Reflections of History. John Meacham is a wonderful historian, and I listen to this podcast every day. Every day there's a new what happened in history on this day. It's only about five minutes long. The governor of New York, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, very early in the 60s took on the radical right uh, of Barry Goldwater. And that's what John Meacham talks about in this podcast. And you're gonna listen to it and you're gonna say, well, that almost sounds like the same issues we're struggling with today. So I want you to listen to it. And if you want to subscribe, it's a wonderful thing to just turn on and listen to for five minutes every day, because it's quite curious to me what happened in history on a particular day of the year. But this is what he's talking about from July 14th. And uh, we'll listen. I'm going to fast forward through some advertising. Shining City Audio, a John Meacham and C-13 original studio. On July 14, 1963, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller attacks the radical right of his own party. I'm John Meacham, and this is Reflections of History. important to show up for yourself times that life throws at all of us. BetterHelp is not a crisis. You have to be on camera if you don't want to, and getting therapists if you need to. 
It's more affordable than traditional flash reflections. That's 10% off your first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash reflections. Okay, here it comes. The roots of the current crisis in the Republican Party can be dated to any number of moments. The McCarthyite opposition to the largely centrist Eisenhower administration. The communist hoodlums are torturing and brainwashing American uniformed men in communist dungeons. The conservative backlash against Warren Court-era decisions on school prayer, among other issues. The white Southern reaction to civil rights legislation in the 1960s. We're soliciting the views of all many people on the civil rights bill. Would you like to give us your views? Well, I think if they remain peaceful, it would be a lot better than perhaps the violence that was concerned. Working class unease with anti-war culture in the years of Vietnam. Richard Nixon's 1968 campaign in which he moved right to blunt the appeal of Alabama's George Wallace. Are you concerned, Mr. Nixon, that some people might think that you and Wallace agree on the matter of desegregation? I'm only concerned that the people understand what is the law and what my position is. Whatever the point in time one wants to note, and there are many options, the moderate critique of the GOP's slow drift away from the 20th century political mainstream was made clear on this date in 1963 when New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller articulated an opposing view to the party's rightward tilt. A child of a great Gilded Age family, a liberal Republican when those words weren't oxymoronic, Rockefeller took on the radical right. Here is part of what he said. While as a party and as a people, we have been keenly aware of the grave threat to American principles posed by international communism, I have now come to the conclusion that many of us have been taking too lightly the growing danger to these very same principles through subversion from the radical right. I am now convinced that unless the vast majority of Republicans who subscribe to these principles are aroused from present inaction, whether this inaction stems from complacency, from fear, or from fantastically short-sighted opportunism, the Republican Party is in real danger of subversion by a radical, well-financed, and highly disciplined minority. For it has now become crystal clear that the vociferous and well-drilled extremist elements boring within the party utterly reject fundamental principles of our heritage. They are, in fact, embarked on a determined and ruthless effort to take over the party, its platform, and its candidates on their own terms, terms that are wholly alien to the sound and honest conservatism that has firmly based the Republican Party in the best of the country's traditions, wholly alien to the sound and honest Republican liberalism that has kept the party abreast of human needs in a changing world, wholly alien to the broad middle course that accommodates the mainstream of Republican principle. This cannot be allowed to happen. The continuing commitment of the Republican Party to its historic principles, including its fundamental dedication to equality of opportunity for all men, cannot and must not be betrayed. No temptation of political gain through cynical expediency can be permitted to becloud our commitment to principle and purpose. 
So said Nelson Rockefeller. An overemphasis on states' rights, an overzealous anti-communism, and a retreat from the broad consensus the federal government has a positive role to play in the life of the nation. These things, all these things, worried Rockefeller. History, however, was on the other side. Barry Goldwater would win the 1964 presidential nomination. We must and we shall return to proven ways, not because they are old, but because they are true. And while Presidents Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and the Bushes would essentially govern within the consensus that was already under attack nearly 60 years ago, the rise of Donald Trump would bring Rockefeller's warning to vivid life. Together, we will make America strong again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. And yes, together, we will make America great again. Whether the party of Lincoln can long survive is now an open question. If it is to do so, it will partly be because of present-day sentiments that share a spirit and a substance with these distant words of Nelson Rockefeller. Thank you for listening to Reflections of History, a creation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals and John Meacham Studio. So, I found that interesting that there's a connection there with what we see going on around us a little bit. Um, Barry Goldwater, interestingly enough, kind of um, brought this support with a resistance toward um, civil rights. In other words, he was strongly anti-civil rights. And um, that was, again, a way of sustaining white Christian privilege and power. Uh, Fortunately, uh, he did not win. Richard Nixon uh, would eventually come to the presidency in 1968. And um, another development, even though he would eventually resign, is that he was an individual that knew the power of the religious right. And if I go back to this slide here, you can see down at the bottom, he was not a religious man, but he knew that anti-communist rhetoric could woo this, this particular group of people. So he, uh, he calls upon Billy Graham to actually help him in his effort. And Nixon would uh, work to identify himself with born-again Christianity. Um, but there was some doubt there whether he actually knew Christ or not. But what it did do was cause an alliance between the Republican Party and the strong right evangelical presence that had grown in the 1960s. That make sense to everybody? All of this is oversimplification because we're only picking out a few people. There are dozens and hundreds of different influences, but um, I think it's kind of interesting to see how it shapes up 
as we move forward to our own day. You have some questions or comments on this slide or the podcast? Okay, the other big influence, obviously, that we all remember is the Vietnam War. Um, so the Vietnam War was kind of a coming of age uh, in the 1960s and 70s because it really kind of split the nation down the middle. There were people that were anti-war and there were those that felt that we should be in that war. Um, and of course, the whole movement of the uh, hippie generation came about with make love, not war. And along with that came um, the, the freedom of sexual liberation and free love and all that type of thing. Um, the evangelicals leaned the other way and they leaned toward uh, support of the war. And what we find is that this particular war um, grew weary upon the nation as a whole. And as a result of that, there was a lot of projection upon the people that were anti-war that these were individuals that um, were rebellious. These are individuals that did not respect authority, uh, that type of thing. Uh, so the war, as I put here, is a watershed moment for evangelicals. Um, which side are they, they going to land on? Well, they will land on the uh, militant side. And what we find is um, that brought with it some things that uh, put some stress on authoritarianism, submission, uh, rebellion, those type of things. So um, it's interesting how all of this kind of comes together with religious figures that rise to the top. So I remember this is my junior high years. Um, you know, the, the anti-war movement, the bell-bottom jeans, the flower power, all, all of that, um, was also joined with you can't trust anyone over 30 type of mentality. And so there was some rebellion, obviously. Um, Anti-war protesters shunned authority um, and were very suspicious of older generations. But it, they had a point. The war itself um, was something that we got in but couldn't get out. and. And it was an embarrassment in some ways to the nation as a whole that we couldn't win that war. So as a result of all that, um, what we find is the weariness of the war would eventually get Jimmy Carter elected. Uh, but while the evangelical born again movement felt because he was a Southern Baptist born again Sunday school teacher, that he would honor all of their positions. He gets into the presidency and actually he refuses to roll back civil rights and the ERA amendment. Uh, so uh, Christians are disappointed at that. 
And what we find is that there's these strong voices that uh, begin to come into uh, the Christian world. So here on this slide, the evangelical left and the Christian right would pursue different trajectories um, and their networks and their alliances were different. So here you have uh, American soldiers that gave their lives in a war they didn't understand or even really know why they were there. And they would come back and the younger generation would not see these soldiers as heroes because they were a symbol of this authoritarian government that was getting involved in a war that we shouldn't have been in. Again, sounds familiar in our own day and age. We had, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan and all of that. Should we be there? That type of thing. A lot of history does circle around and repeat itself. So what happens, though, is explanations for this rebellious generation began to be popular in the literature of strong right Christian pastors. And there is a mega church pastor that really made his name when he published a book in 1972 on how to rear uh, children. His name is Jack Hiles, and here's what Jack Hiles looks, looks like. He uh, lived from uh, 1926 to 2001. He's really the first mega church pastor. His church was in Indiana, in Hammond, Indiana, and um, he was very patriotic. And what we find is that he was an individual that was staunch in saying that parents must teach their boys specifically how to fight and how to be rugged enough to defend their country. So he takes on a lot of military imagery and militant kind of masculinity. And what we find is that he begins to um, connect that to politics. So the religious right, and the political right are, are kind of wed together. His position on women was that uh, girls should be trained to submit. And of course he would use the Bible as his uh, backdrop to that, selectively proof texting. They must obey immediately and without question. And so this man, which you may have never ever heard of, really kind of began to open the door to, uh, to Jim Dobson, okay? And what we find taking place though, at the same time, I just find all of these little threads fascinating. What we see taking place at the same time is while the religious right and the political right wants to push back on civil rights, here we have women's, women's liberation and the Equal Rights Amendment begins to come to the forefront. Well, there's a reason why that takes place, not only for the fight of uh, women's rights, but now after World War II and after the Korean War and to a certain extent, the Vietnam War, the American economy needed a larger workforce. 
which necessitated women to enter into the workforce. And they began to leave the home as the traditional June Cleaver role of being, um, you know, a wife and a mother type thing. And they began to take a prominent role in the business world as well. So women's liberation began to make a press for equal rights. And eventually the Equal Rights Amendment is established in 1972. And here's how it reads. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States of America or by any state on account of sex. So things like hiring and firing and promotions and benefits uh, were to be equal between men and women. If they're doing the same job, they should get the same pay, get the same benefits. Well, that, while it made advances, I think studies even show today that that's still not really true, that women lag behind in terms of pay and benefits than uh, their male counterparts. But there was pushback to this. And the pushback to this was a woman by the name of Maribel Morgan, who in 1973 published a book called The Total Woman. And she advised women to submit to their husband because it was God's will. It's God's plan that they submit uh, and they do so unconditionally. Uh, they just submit to their husband. If you remember the name Anita Bryant, uh, she gave her full support to Maribel Morgan's uh, book. And so did the missionary Elizabeth Elliot. I don't know if you have ever heard of Elizabeth Elliot or not. So they began to say, no, equality is not a Christian ideal or value. Um, women are, uh, were given as God's gift to man, and they are to be the head of the home, and they're to make the last call. And um, these individuals were willing to push that in front of the Christian community. But what we find is there's another lady have any of you heard of Phyllis Shafley? Phyllis Shafley was a Catholic. She was not an evangelical. But she was an individual that pushed uh, submission as a value. And politically, uh, she threw her weight behind uh, Barry Goldwater's campaign. Here's what Phyllis uh, Shafley looks like. Uh, lived from 1924 to 2016. So she passed away not too long ago and Esty just loves her hairstyle. <laughs> but that's what the 60s looked like, right? That was the style of the day. I, I look back on pictures of my mom having a beehive and I go, what on earth was that on top of her head? But that was popular. Yeah, that was the style of the day. This lady here did a lot to... Um, to kind of merge uh, evangelical women um, along with political conservatism. And um, she helps us cement that alliance. And she insisted that women's liberation were simply radical women, that their agenda was to wage war on marriage, children, and the family. 
And she likened gender equality to communism, which was the big boogeyman of the 1960s, the Cold War. So to Shafley, the ERA was a religious issue that needed to be repelled. So let me go back here uh, to a second for a second. Remember what I just said a moment ago that all of these things are coming together and yet the mission statement of the ERA amendment um, is equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States of America or by any state on account of sex. That has, it says nothing about an agenda of destroying the family. All of this type of thing is kind of put to an addendum of uh, being politically and religiously wary of women who insisted on equal rights and, and um, equal pay and all those type of things. So let me stop there for a second. Now we're getting closer to our own day and age. Do you guys remember some of these um, pressure points? And uh, does that sound right? Or did you kind of experience it differently? What's that, Beth? Sounds about right. Oh, oh okay, that's interesting. So you, yeah. Now this is interesting. So Beth was just sharing that um, her mom would not allow her to have a Barbie doll when she was growing up because it reflected women's lips. Interesting. That's an interesting comment. Yeah. So it reflected this boogeyman uh, of women's liberation. Uh, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Interesting. How were, How old were you at the time? Do you remember? Six or seven. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's interesting. Beth said she kept asking for the a Barbie doll for Christmas and Santa never brought it. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. So Esty, as you know, grew up uh, under communism. And so Phyllis Shafley connecting uh, this to communism doesn't surprise Esty because uh, supposedly in communism, everyone's an equal and that type of thing. It did, That didn't really work out that way, did it usually? It worked itself out that way in the workplace? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So Esty said that when her family came over in 1973 from Yugoslavia, uh, she was very surprised that women were not treated equally uh, in that era. That so, so thank you. So she's showing the connection between Shafley's mentality and and communism. Interesting. 
any comments or questions there? Okay, so let's go back here to this slide for a moment. So um, years before Jim Dobson and Jerry Falwell kind of entered the political fray, Shafley really united white Christians around a deeply conservative vision of family and nation. The, the woman is to be at home. She's to be a homemaker. Uh, the man is to be the breadwinner. But she also included this theological belief behind it. And that is, women were God's gift to man, not the other way around. So if that's the case, then uh, a woman is to submit. And even if a woman was being mistreated or possibly abused, they were to suck it up and they were to take it because that's what God's will is. In some respect, um, some of that can be found in ultra conservative type of churches even today. And that is, um, you know, no, you can't get separated. No, you can't have a divorce, but he's beating me up. That's too bad. You, you are to submit. Um, so that's an interesting theological uh, backdrop to some very bad theology. Uh, over the years when I've had women that have uh, expressed to me being abused. Uh, uh, I, I would say in counseling, I, why are you still there? Why, why? Get, out of the, get out of the house? Um, because they had been shaped to think that they're not allowed to get out from that circle of danger. So, so her ideas had a strong effect upon American evangelicalism and also the Republican Party. Thoughts? So now, before we get to Jim Dobbs and Jerry Falwell, there's a guy that kind of grew in uh, this era of time uh, by the name of Bill Gothard. Has, any, has anybody ever heard of Bill Gothard? Interestingly enough, when I was attending Moody Bible Institute, um, so the year that I was, um, I, I went, it went to Moody was 1977. He still had a very prominent role. And in, in downtown Chicago, he would put on uh, conferences with his organization that's called the Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts. And uh, Gothard, um, very conservative evangelical, um, was an individual that worked with a lot of youth. In 1961, he founded Campus Teams, which was an organization to try to deal with the problems of wayward youth. And then he changed the name of that to the Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts. But he looked upon the 60s as the rebellion of a generation that grew up in families where they were not forced to submit to the parental authority. So Gothard's philosophy was built upon a very strict adherence to authority, biblical law, those type of things. And 
uh, he believed that freedom was not found in a person's individual autonomy, but submission to authority. And he believed that God had ordained certain authorities in these three spheres of life, family, church, and government. And all of them should function without outside interference. They should be able to um, order the day. Well, he advanced, as you can see on the slide there, the idea of this uh, chain of command. And his, his approach was very uh, military in its outlook and structure. So what he did was um, he tried to help families navigate some of the conflicts that they were going through. But what he insisted upon was extensive and inflexible rules uh, dating was strictly forbidden. Um, he believed that courtship, like biblical law, was often arranged and supervised by the fathers rather than built upon mutual attraction, interests, and romance. So this individual here, Bill Gothard, um, played a huge part of trying to push back on the rebellion of the 1960s. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, when people use the Bible and they have a very, very strong authoritarian structure to them, there's a lot of abuse that takes place. So in 2014, it came to light that he had abused, Bill Gothard had abused 34 women and, and accused uh, him of sexual harassment and molestation and so in 2014, he steps down from his organization and his son takes over. Well, his son also had legal problems as well. And it seemed to have been passed down from one generation to the next. But what really came to light back in 2014 is that many of his victims were minors. So he... Uh, is still alive. I, I, you know, I'd have to go back and see if he served time and how much time, that type of thing. Um, so he would be 88, uh, 88 years old at this time, but I didn't get that far into the rabbit hole to kind of see that, but yeah, exactly. So anyways, um, interesting figure because here's why here's why i spent some time on that around the same time there was a child psychologist by the name of jim dobson that in 1970 uh published a book dare to discipline have any of you heard that book okay it's been on probably the library and most church uh shelves <laughs> uh for many many years um so he basically comes to the same conclusion as Gothard that all of the people that were protesting in the 60s were troubled youth. And he believed that uh, their, their problems extended from uh, the breakdown of the social order of the family. And it led to sexual revolution, divorce, disintegration of the family. All of this played into rebellion. Um, so he was an individual, um, I'm sure some of us have heard of Dr. Spock, 
Okay, Dr. Spock uh, was an individual that insisted on a more permissive approach to parenting, uh, but he, he repudiates that. And he begins to champion, now this is very important, Jim Dobson begins to champion um, the Judeo-Christian value to reassert authority and he advised parents to beat the child into submission. Okay, so spanking was encouraged and you had to kind of, uh, you know, physically get this rebellion out of them. I remember early on, so here's 1970, I came to Christ in 1975. And it seemed as though at the time, Jim Dobson was gospel. Anything that he said was true. Um, and so because he believed in the inherent sinfulness of children, he believed that all children are inclined to defiance and rebellion. And that the only way you could get it out of them um, was to chastise them and, and physically to do so. And thus the, the name of the book, Dare to Discipline. So he's trying to reassert, uh, reassert the authoritarian kind of family structure because he believes to his core that that's what's going to preserve order, uh, not only in the family, but in the life of the nation as well. Now that's from a Christian perspective and from a child um, psychologist perspective. But the one thing that Jim Dobson did as he continued to um, assert his popularity and his power is he entered into the, the political arena, okay? So here's Jim Dobson, uh, born 1936. Uh, he's still living to this day and age. I, um, I don't know, is his program still on the radio? That's where he made his popularity. Focus on the family. Is it still on Christian radio? I don't, I, yeah. But anyways, um, he was an individual, uh, as you'll see here, that he founds the Focus on the Family Organization in 1977, but by the mid-80s, so look at this rise of popularity. By the mid-80s, he was on over 800 radio stations with his half-hour daily radio program. And of course, the people that he would invite on were in support of his particular viewpoint, okay? So what happens here is Dobson um, begins to uh, try to preserve kind of a traditional throwback to the 50s uh, of a man's role, a woman's role, and those type of things. And what we find is he too, like Shafley, Phyllis Shafley, blamed feminists for tampering with these roles. And so Dobson has this very narrow viewpoint that women are made for this, okay? Now, he will play a pretty important role in the religious right. And the reason he becomes so powerful in the religious right is through these things that are mentioned here, books, newsletters, and radio. He became very, very popular. And he became a fixture in the evangelical empire. 
So by now you're beginning to see that evangelicalism isn't just a religious thing, it's a political thing as well. And so his defense of patriarchy contributed to merging the cultural identity of what he believed was a Judeo-Christian uh, teaching with a, a growing commitment to political activism. So what two things do you think he's going to latch on to? It's the same couple of things that I mentioned that goes all the way back uh, to the 60s. And that is uh, the idea of, of um, ab abortion and gay rights. Okay. He, he, to this very day, is insistent on those two things as voting uh, points. At the same time, there is an individual by the name of Jerry Falwell that becomes quite popular. Another individual that grew a church, Thomas Road Baptist Church down in Lynchburg, Virginia, uh, grew it into a mega church. And uh, he is an individual uh, born in 1933, passed away in 2007. He was in his office and had a massive heart attack. His son, Jerry Falwell Jr. takes over Liberty University, which had been established by that time. So he establishes Thomas Road Baptist Church, and he echoes a lot of the same themes that Shafley and later Dobson will echo, and that is a strong national defense, a return to macho masculinity. Um, and he in particular is very, very patriotic. And he uses patriotism as a shift toward militarism. Uh, and he will build a political empire, uh, not only through his church, but through radio and television, and his university as well. Um, it's interesting that he crosses paths with Barry Goldwater. So in 1979, at the nudging of Barry Goldwater's associates, he launches the Moral Majority. And the Moral Majority is a political organization uh, and its primary purpose is to train, mobilize, and electrify the religious rights and to shape young people into being warriors for Christ or champions for Christ. He's an individual too that um, begins to talk about free enterprise a lot. And he, he used the book of Proverbs extensively uh, to substantiate that this is a country of free enterprise. We need to keep that. Um, and, and he was very patriotic, turning to God instead of government, though it was his mainstay. And as, as we have said several times already tonight, he will take a strong stand against the ERA, against feminism, and what he felt was the homosexual agenda, okay? The homosexual revolution. And he was an individual that used a lot of military metaphors as well in the way that he communicated this vision. He was a very powerful man. And he was an individual that convinced um, many in the political realm that uh, white Christian um, 
right-wing fundamentalist uh, type approach to things was the dominant outlook of, of Christians and thus the name, the moral majority. So, boy, I've thrown a lot at you tonight, okay? But all of these individuals play a very important role in shaping the ongoing tension that we find even to this day and age. So here we are, 2022, and it's the same issues in some respects that are on the political agenda. And so the religious right is still pushing for um, what they call pro-life, even though in my opinion, it, um, it's, it's not pro-life. It is, uh, you know, it is pro-birth. Um, but at the same time, what we find is it's projected as pro-life. And then on the other hand too, is the attempt not only to push back and, and it, they accomplished it, the rollback with the stacking of the Supreme Court of Roe versus Way. Um, there's also what's next up on the agenda by far right wing is the rollback of LGBT rights as well. So keep, keep an eye on that in the daily news because a lot of this is the same is the same battles that are going on when you watch CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or, or you know, those type of things. Churches as well. And I'm going to show you next week a, a, a video clip that shows the merging of patriotism with, with real Christianity, okay? So probably the... Um, primary example right now is the churches that hold huge military type services in church as part of their worship experience. Um, and I'm not going to get into that tonight, but I'm going to show you a video next week that you're going to kind of go, wow. In certain circles, you're not a Christian unless you hold a particular political viewpoint. Okay, so does that make sense to everyone? Is there questions, comments that you have? Uh, Jerry Falwell's Jr., uh, most recently in the news, um, was um, stepped away from his pre presidency of Liberty University uh, because of a lot of dark and sexual uh, things that were going on him with some other people him watching his wife have sexual intercourse with a pool boy uh those type of things um there there was he was an individual uh, falwell jr that was not a pastor uh jonathan falwell took over thomas road baptist church his brother but he was primarily a businessman and he was an individual uh, that became very rich. Uh, if you follow the news, uh, there had been a lot of accusations of covering up some uh, sexual misconduct uh, toward some of the students of Liberty University, that type of thing. So all of that was kind of a snowball that eventually led him to step down. 
but but the but the marriage between um, Jerry Falwell Jr. and the religious right and the political right was was seen when he invited Trump to Liberty University to speak, and that's where he threw his endorsement for uh, Trump's presidency. So, okay, that's a lot. Do you, do you guys have some thoughts, some insights, some additional things that could be helpful in this conversation tonight? You left out Jack and Rexella. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Jack Van Empey and Roxella. Yeah, Rexella, wasn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah. Well, he was an individual that was quite popular on TV. You're exactly right, Jack Van Empey and oh, and, his, and his and his uh, wife. The man had memorized huge portions of the Bible. The entire. We met him and talked to him for a while. Did yeah. you? Yeah, he was an he had an amazing mind. I mean, yeah. he was an individual that could recall verses and so. Where did you guys see him at? At a GARB uh, uh, big rally. Oh yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. He was. He was. Uh, they were very much into the anti-communist sort of thing. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, yeah. what also goes along with all, all of these figures as well, and Jack Van Empey is a good example of this. All of them have a very apocalyptic outlook on the end times, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and that is, uh, society will not get better. Only Jesus can do that. What we're looking for is the second coming. We're not looking for social reforms. So you get, you get a lot of that type of outlook as well from that. I know Van Empey was an individual that played a lot of, um, played a lot off of eschatology. A lot. Yeah, he did, yeah. So, yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah, I would have never thought of him uh, only because I, I never connected him with the political angle that we are are kind of connecting here. But yeah, he no, was, I was kidding. He, yeah, I, I would agree. I, I, don't, I don't ever recall him being that political. But. Well, yeah. back in the 70s. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of televangelists and TV preachers. I mean, that had huge influences on on the American culture. Um, these individuals uh, also got very rich off of this uh, as well, because they usually employed people to use a faith-based um, approach to giving. If you want God to bless you, then you need to sow a seed. That's kind of some of the language that is often used. One, other, one question. Remember the... the uh... You've got it, or what was what was the term? It was when we were in college. I found it. Yeah, that was a big. big I issue. found it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That that was something that became very popular around that time too. You're right. Um, and people would have bumper stickers or little right. yeah. badges and stuff. And the whole idea behind it was, well, what did you find? It was supposed mm -hmm. to be a door opener, right. conversation, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was an evangelistic campaign approach. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to close it off here because it's eight o'clock. And uh, as I mentioned, I'm going to meet a family here over at the funeral home to plan a funeral for this weekend. So um, we're going to close off here. We'll pick up from 
this point next week. So hopefully you're finding some of these things and the connections quite interesting. I, I'm finding it amazing because I never really made the connections at the times that they were happening. So, all right. Have a good evening, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.